Here's a thought-provoking point about prayer from Pastor Tom Keller on Study the Word. In the Gospels, Jesus often likens prayer as to a son or a daughter asking their father for something, like a loaf of bread, a tear-filled prayer. Oh, Father, please give me food today. Please don't let me starve. I beg of you. Is that necessary for a child to say to a loving father? No, of course not. There's a confidence in your father's love that sometimes doesn't even require you to ask for food. You only thank him for the fact that you know he will provide it for you. It's time for Study the Word. We are the Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Lebanon. Our teacher is Pastor Tom Keller, and today we're finishing chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus utters a simple thank you to the Father, in confidence that his prayer had been heard. A good example for every Christian believer. Here again is Pastor Tom. I suspect that when Jesus saw these two dear sisters weeping with sorrow, devastated by the sudden loss of their brother, Jesus is angry concerning this very real, tragic, mind-numbing consequence, which could be traced back to Adam's sin in the garden. Why? Because death and suffering were not a part of God's original plan, was it? No. God's original plan was life in the garden, uncorrupted by sin, every single day, literally, literally, heaven on earth, where we know that Adam actually walked with God in the garden. Imagine walking with God in the garden. And I think it's interesting that the Bible says that we too as Christians groan, the same word, groan, over this same loss of innocence. Romans 8, 20. It says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, here it is again, groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Do you? What a day. To be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. What a day. So always remember, when you lose a loved one or whenever you attend a funeral, that Jesus is right there at that service with you, isn't he? Wherever two or three are gathered, I am in the midst of them. And as you picture him there in that room with all of you, mourning, I believe I picture him groaning, maybe even being angry over the loss of that original design that has caused this suffering to be taking place. But there is some good news, some very good news. 
God has a plan to redeem and restore mankind to get you and me back to that original plan, to a world where there is no death, there is no sickness, there is no sorrow, not even any sin. And God's plan has a name, and the name is Jesus. Jesus came to earth, I think, for basically two reasons. One, to show us what God looks like. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the, for the Father and I are one. But the second reason he came was to pay the price needed to be paid to get us back to the original plan, to get us back to living in that unimaginable joy of heaven, world without end. Amen? What a day. And then these hypocritical religious leaders say something that I believe confirms my thesis on the reason for Jesus' groaning and indignation. Listen, verse 36. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? That's the high road. But some critics say, but some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Again, King James says again here, groaning like the snorting of a horse to have indignation, to be vehemently agitated by what they said. Why? Because they said that Jesus couldn't keep Lazarus from dying. It, in fact, was Jesus' plan A, never to have anyone die. It wasn't his plan. And I believe it made Jesus angry that they pin on him the blame for Lazarus' death, whereas that blame rested squarely on their ancestor Adam's shoulders. And then verse 38. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the man's dead sister, protested. I picture this as a whisper. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Now, these grave clothes were long strips of cloth wrapped around and around the body over and over. What a scene this would have been. Now, back in verse 19, we're told that many people had come to mourn. There are six different Greek words for many. The Greek word used here is polis, which means numerous, much, many, great. It says especially when used of a number. This same Greek word polis is used in Matthew 8, verse 1, where it says, large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. So because of this large crowd witnessing his resurrection, this news is broadcast far and wide. So picture the scene. There's a rolling stone cave. Jesus says, roll the stone away. Now a rolling stone is in a track. And the track is always slanted, so it's easy to close it, but difficult to open it. And so it would have taken a large number of men to push this stone and roll it out of the way. They do. And as they roll it aside, Martha, trying to protect her brother's honor, says, but 
we will be overcome by the stench of this. Please don't dishonor my brother in this way. And Jesus responds, but then I tell you, you will see God's glory if you believe, Martha. And then Jesus looks up to heaven and he prays a very short prayer. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people so they will believe that you sent me. And then in verse 43, Jesus shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. Now, why didn't he just yell, come forth? Well, it's been said that Jesus specifically mentioned Lazarus' name alone here because Jesus is standing in a field full of probably hundreds of tombs. And if he just would have cried, come forth, it would have resulted in a very different outcome. A lot of very surprised husbands, a lot of very surprised wives at who came forth. Imagine that. I thought about insurance policies having to be paid back. <laughs> and then verse 45, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. This was to the detriment of the religious leaders. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then their leading priests and Pharisees called the high council, the Sanhedrin, together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was a high priest at that time, said, cool, calm, collected, devious. I picture the squint of his eyes. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. From the reading of the scripture, I believe this is the absolute low point for the enemies of Jesus. Listen again, verse 47 and 48. The leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go in like this, Soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. They've never talked this desperately as they do here. That was their low point. And their high point is less than a week away. John 19, verse 12, as Jesus is before Pilate, it says, then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. And then two verses later, verse 14, it was now about noon on the day of the preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, he's trying to release Jesus. He brings him out on the bench. Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. I think Pilate was floored. Never expected that. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. And then this is so demonic. This is the ultimate hypocrisy. If there was any group of people that did not believe what is said next, it were the religious leaders. They hated Rome. And they said, again, that, that demonic look in their eyes, inspired by Satan, we have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. I think that was their high point. Because in that moment when they said, we have no king but Caesar, they knew they had Pilate. 
Because if he didn't control this, with Jerusalem filled with like 3 million people, it was a powder keg. And if it got back to Rome that he couldn't control the people, he'd lose his position. They had him. They knew it, and he knew it. And from this point on, Jesus was crucified. And in verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest, says to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish Supreme Court, how can you be so stupid? We just need to kill him. The apostle John says this in verse 51, he did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. Listen, and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. This was a prophecy that Jesus would die not just for Israel, but for all the Gentile nations as well. And then verse 53. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness, to the village of Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. So Jesus is hiding out now for just these few days until he will be crucified, which would be the Passover, which is when the perfect and spotless lamb was sacrificed this time, the final perfect and spotless lamb. Now, this village of Ephraim that he traveled to is located within the tribe of Ephraim, 13 miles from Jerusalem, about a four-hour walk. And then verse 55. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. John tells us that many people traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. Do we have any idea as to how many people? Well, William Barclay says this, quote, a passage in Josephus' writings, Josephus was, is a trusted Jewish historian who wrote uh, the history of the Jews who lived at the same time Jesus did, same era. A passage in Josephus' writings gives us an idea of how many pilgrims actually came to Passover. He tells us that Cestus, the governor of Palestine around 65 AD, had some difficulty in persuading Caesar Nero of the importance of the Jewish religion. To impress him, he asked the then high priest to take a census of the number of lambs slain in the Passover in one year. The number, according to Josephus, was 256,500 lambs. And Jewish law dictated that there must be a minimum party of 10 for each lamb. So that meant that there must have been close to 3 million pilgrims in Jerusalem during Passover. So to compare that, what was the estimated non-holiday population of Jerusalem during Jesus' day? Most scholars estimate it as high as 75,000 or less. So if you take a city of 75,000 housing 3 million pilgrims for a seven-day feast, that's 40 times their normal population, 40 times. Now, for comparison's sake, the population of Lebanon City is 26,000. 26,000 times 40 times is 1 million people. So a comparison would be a million people being in Lebanon for seven days. Philadelphia is 1.5 million. So picture two-thirds of Philadelphia visiting the city of Lebanon 
and staying here for seven days. Yikes. And John tells us that these crowds came to Jerusalem, many of them specifically wanting to see Jesus. Verse 56, they kept looking, the crowds kept looking for Jesus, but as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest them. And this sediment of the crowd, this eager desire to see Jesus, would have absolutely infuriated the religious leaders in envy and jealousy. Now, don't miss the implicit goal behind the religious leaders' plan to arrest Jesus during Passover. They want to kill Jesus during Passover. Remember their fear in verse 48. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. So, how does today's lesson apply to me? Well, number one, I think there's a lesson here on prayer. Is it fair to say that every prayer Jesus ever prayed that's recorded for us is a model prayer for us? Is that fair? I think so. John eleven forty one. 41. So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven. Here's his prayer. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come forth. You know, I've always been impacted, always surprised by how short this prayer is. It's just so brief, concise, quickly stated, this articulation of God. In fact, if you take away verse 42, which was for the benefit of those listening, Jesus' prayer to God is simply, Father, thank you for hearing me. It's not a five-minute prayer. It's not a tear-filled, impassioned, pleading, begging of God to heal Lazarus. No, it's just a request, a request spoken by Jesus to his father, stated as though he knows his father hears him and he knows his father will answer him. And I think this provides an important lesson for us on prayer. This might catch you a bit off guard, but hear me out. You will get no extra credit with God for praying a long, impassioned, emotional, tear filled prayer. It doesn't help assure you of getting your prayers answered. Now, am I saying it's wrong to approach God this way in prayer by having a tear-filled and passionate prayer? Of course not. Not if that's your true heart at that moment. Think of Jesus in the garden. Tear-filled, impassioned prayer. But you won't move God to want to answer your prayer more by filling your prayer with more words or more emotion. In the Gospels, Jesus often likens prayer as to a son or a daughter asking their father for something, like a loaf of bread, a tear-filled prayer. Oh, Father, please give me food today. Please don't let me starve. I beg of you. Is that necessary for a child to say to a loving father? No, of course not. There's a confidence in your father's love that sometimes doesn't even require you to ask for food. You only thank him 
for the fact that you know he will provide it for you. Now, I'm almost 70 years old. And through the decades of my walk with Jesus, my prayers have changed. In the beginning years, I asked for a lot. I don't ask for much now. You know why? I know he's going to provide. He's been so faithful. So I need to ask him for food. I thank him before it comes because I know it will. How can you look at 50, 60 years of God's faithfulness and think that I still need to plead for him to do those things that are good and helpful to me? He is so faithful. So why do you think we have to plead and moan and beg for God to do those things that are helpful and beneficial to us? We don't. It's his nature. When you're young, you don't know that yet. When you get to be 70, you'll know. You'll have experienced time after time after time that takes that need away. More could be said on that, but I encourage you as you do your own personal devotions, I encourage you to look at all of the prayers that are prayed in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts, and you will find that the vast majority of those prayers are just simple articulation of a need and a request, not tear-filled and passion prayers. Just understanding that God is listening and will hear and will answer. Second application, and this is very practical. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Folks, every time you mourn for the loss of a friend, when you hear of a child dying of cancer or a teen that's killed in a tragic car accident, every time you attend a funeral, try to remember that Jesus is literally at that funeral weeping with those grieving parents, and I believe at that same time is moved with anger, indignation, as the Greek implies, Jesus groaning out in a loud, inarticulate noise, deeply troubled, Greek with vehement agitation, at the loss and hurt he sees all of those people experiencing because that was never his design. But also remember this, that Jesus came to make a way for those people in that room to get back to heaven and back once again to the original plan and even back with that child that they just lost. Living in a world without sickness, without pain, no disease, no suffering, no sin, no death. Can you remember that? Try to add that to your experience at a funeral. Picture Jesus groaning, being angry that you have to go through this but he has a plan to fix it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your love for us, a love that we can entrust our lives to, our future to, every care, concern. Lord, you are a big God. And if you're here this morning or you're listening and you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's not yet your father. You don't yet have that love relationship with him, but you can change that right now, right now. It happens by way of a prayer. If you'd like to do that, I encourage you to pray this prayer. Just repeat this quietly after me. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me for my sins. I do receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Now, Lord, help me to live a life that honors you, a life that pleases you, not to continue to pay for or earn my salvation but simply as a way of saying thank you for this incredible, free, unmerited, undeserved gift. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us today for Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller. Hear these studies from the Gospel of John again at ccleb.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. If you'd rather have a CD copy, call 717-273-5633. If you find these studies helpful to your walk with Christ, we'd like to know. It'd be so encouraging to Pastor Tom and all of us at Study the Word. Give us a call at 717-273-5633 or write to Study the Word, 740 Willow Street, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, 17046. You can also email us through the website at ccleb.com. Study the Word is made possible through the support of our listeners. Large or small, your gifts help to make these programs possible on stations all across the nation. So thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. You can give online at ccleb.com or call 717-273-5633. We hope you'll visit us sometime here at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. For our service times and more information, go online to ccleb.com. Be sure to introduce yourself after service as a radio listener. That would put a smile on our face. You can also watch our live stream there at ccleb.com or on our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. May God richly bless you as you study the Word. Come back next time when we'll pick up where we left off in John's Gospel as we continue to study the Word. Study the Word.